So I'm going to give you a two-part recap of episode two before we get into episode three, since it's been a while. I know. So in case you forgot, episode two is called Nothing But a Number. That is the collection of seven podcast episodes that make up episode two. I mean, come on, you know how this works by now. Um, Here, I'll give you the recap of the story without the cold opens so that you can get a full sense of where things will be when we pick back up. So this first part is called No Time for Biting, where Kenya tries to get TK a performance at the Kennedy Center. She does, although it's not as easy as she might think it should be, but the high from that performance is quickly diluted when TK meets a boomer who also has aspirations of becoming a rapper. So then the next part is called Where to Draw the Timeline. That was episode 2.2, or if you're reading the book, it's chapter 2. So. You know how this works again. (laughs) But in this one, Kenya later meets up with her friends, Jay and Ty. And they get on the topic of age because Jay is seeing someone. Surprise, surprise. But she's seeing this new guy who is like 20. And although that's only an eight-year difference, Ty feels like it's inappropriate. This conversation, of course, makes Kenya reveal her true feelings about her father's new love interest, who is closer to her age than they are his. She's uncomfortable, but she can't even explain why. And then in the next episode, or of course, episode 2.3, or the third chapter in the book, you're getting the hang of it now, right? (laughs) It's called Men of a Certain Age. Later that day, Kenya, she agrees, although kind of reluctantly, to go out with an older guy. And when she chats with Stax about it, a male friend and fellow millennial, she realizes that maybe she should be more open to older men because considering the ones her age, this might be the reason why she's still single. And then we find out Ty has a secret admirer who she thinks is the father of one of her patients. But we'll see later who exactly is writing these love letters to her. I'm Kayana Ebony Brown, and this is a story of music and men. I was barely a teenager when I decided what I wanted to be when I became a grown-up. The owner of my very own business. But what I didn't know was that it would require doing a whole lot of things I don't particularly want to do, and even more things I'm not particularly good at. And that's just the being a grown-up part. Sometimes I feel like I have to put the adult thing on hold to focus on the more important entrepreneur thing, which was actually finally starting to feel like it might be paying off after only God knows how many hours of toiling away at it. 
The sun was particularly shiny that morning, which coincided with the unseasonably warm, although quite typical of D.C., spring weather we've been having. I try to never rely on an alarm clock to get me up. Thanks to the sun imposing itself on my face at 7.02 that morning, I didn't have to. By 9.02, my teeth had been brushed, my hair had been made in a way I wanted to present it, and I was dressed, albeit from the waist up, in a collared blouse and blazer, prepared for my big meeting in front of my computer camera. Uh, We've seen uh, um, steady growth in our show attendance as as well as across um, social media. I looked and sounded nervous, glancing back and forth between the screen and the paper on the desk in front of me where I jotted some points I wanted to cover. But I wasn't nervous, and I wasn't unprepared. See, the event was a gala at the Kennedy Center called DC Honors, an annual shindig to recognize some of the city's most talented and influential citizens. Public servants, small business owners, artists, teachers, you know, the folks who kept the place afloat. My goal was to have them feature TK as a guest performer at the ceremony. And as much as I'd like to take full credit for getting to this point in the selection process, where I was talking to a board member via computer screen, I can't. Because see, here's how I got here. About a week before this early morning digital meeting, TK was testing out some new material at an open mic when a guy approached me after her set. Um, excuse me, are you... Taj Kamal's manager. I turned around and found the bright, blue-eyed glare of an obvious fan staring back at me, awaiting my response. I took a moment to consider my answer because although it would appear that I was TK's manager, because I do, in fact, do all the things a manager is supposed to do, I'm not a manager. I am the head of a label. But at this point in the game, honestly, this was just semantics. So I replied, Yeah, I handle her business, yes. How may I help you? He stuck out his hand, and before I could take it, he was already introducing himself. I'm the director of honors programming at the Kennedy Center. My name is Blaine Stanfeld. He could see the look of slight confusion on my face, so he proceeded to explain. It's an annual gala that honors DCs. I'm very familiar with it. I'm just wondering why I'm inquiring about Taj Kamal's business. I smiled. He'd taken the thought right out of my head. And then he smiled, revealing clear braces that looked like they had already done the job they'd been installed to do. His freckly alabaster skin brought out the orange in his full head of hair. And he couldn't even pass for 30 if he tried, but... Because of the fact that he mentioned his obvious weight-bearing job title before he even stated his name, I bet he never had to worry about his age causing any problems. I'd like for you to consider submitting TK's name to our board as one of the featured performers for this year's event. I quickly said, I don't need to consider it. It'd be, well, an honor. (laughs) <laughs> we shared a laugh at my corny little pun. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of her work. I have every song she's ever put out. So 
I'd personally like to see her on that stage. He pulled out a card and pointed it at me. Email my assistant a press kit and I promise you, you'll hear back from me very soon. I took the card and thanked him. The press kit he'd requested was in his inbox before he started work the next morning. And as promised, he got right back to me. But connecting with Blaine only qualified as step one. Step two was convincing the committee. And a version of Blaine 30 years in the future, looking back at me on the screen through black-rimmed glasses, was the committee's sole representative for this meeting, Doug Leone. He looked like a character J.R.R. Tolkien would have dreamed up. With his milky, flawless, translucent skin, deep-set brown eyes and platinum, more salt than pepper, hair. His glasses, bow tie, and blazer added a borderline nerdy look to his otherwise academic appearance, which probably played well for him considering the significant time he spent building his resume in management in the sports world. He was youthful and fit, and I only knew he was post-50 because it was in his bio. Maybe it was because of how strongly I felt about how great of an opportunity this would be for my artist. Or maybe it was simply because the guy I was talking to smiled a lot, which did bring a level of comfort to the conversation that it wouldn't have otherwise had. But I wasn't nervous, and despite how I might have come across, I wasn't unprepared. I was, however, mentally trying to find the right way to sway someone who had no idea why he was even talking to me, wasn't a fan of my artist's music, and who obviously didn't get why his co-worker, who was half his age, would even suggest adding TK to this caliber of an event when she had never been part of it before. Um, may I ask... Have you listened to any of Taj Kamal's music? I inquired. He didn't say no, but he didn't say yes either, which meant that he hadn't. He instead went with, Miss Shaw, this event does reach an array of people from all walks, all ages, and we are trending a little younger this year, the 40 to 55 age group for both the broadcast and the live show. Miss Shaw, I... I admire your grit, and I'm rooting for you personally, but I'll be honest. And he stopped to consider his words for a moment, perhaps finding a way to cushion his next blow. For events of this caliber, we usually go with music, artists that is, that are more universal. We do a lot with hip-hop, but, and this is no offense to you, there's a certain audience that hip-hop targets that's just not quite what we're going for with this event specifically. I won't lie. It really hurt to hear this. This type of thinking was one of the many hurdles I'd faced since starting my company that was perhaps slowing me down from getting where and what I wanted. See, like adulthood, running your own business doesn't come with a manual so you won't have a clue what you're doing. And odds are, you won't have very much help at first. And like I did for the first few years of running my own record company, 
Hell, like I did to start off this very important conversation with this guy. You'll more than likely suck at it terribly. Until you decide to toss the remaining fucks you've always given out the nearest window and just go for it, whatever it may be. So as if a hand had begun pressing in the middle of my back, my posture changed and I became more upright in my seat as my goal for this conversation changed. Now whether I got what I sought when we began the call or not, I wasn't going to let this guy leave the meeting without knowing how wrong he was. Not only about TK's fit for this caliber of an event, but also how his worldview of music and audiences in general was just antiquated and short-sighted and a disservice to his audience. Well, thank you for your consideration, Mr. Leone. But let me tell you a quick story before we end this meeting. I was about eight when I found out the truth about music. See, I grew up right here in D.C. in an old house as an only child who spent the majority of my time with someone much older than me, my grandma. And even though there were more than 50 years between us, we shared one love, and that was for music. So one day, while she was making us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or something for lunch, and I sat there watching, of course, with the radio playing in the background, Right as the song was ending and the next one was beginning, I asked her, how do all those people fit in there? (laughs) And she looked at me, her eyebrows wrinkled so tightly that I could almost see a literal question mark on her face. (laughs) So I tried to clarify by saying, the people playing the music, how do they all fit? And she said, how do they all fit where? Sweetie, do you think that the people are in our radio playing the music? And of course, I laughed and said, no, I don't think they're in our radio. It's too small. But the place, wherever they are, how do all of the singers and musicians fit in that room? She smiled and her head tilted back a bit as she was now understanding what I was actually trying to ask her. And she explained to me, that the sounds coming through the radio speakers weren't being played live somewhere by musicians each time the song changed, but that it was made long before it got to the radio station. She told me how writers, or even the musicians themselves, would sit down and create the song. The words and the sounds. They would go to something called a studio, where they could play the music while it was being captured on a machine in order to make it sound perfect. And in order to make lots of copies of it, like the collection of records she owned. After that, a whole other process commenced before, say, an eight-year-old got wind of it. She said that this, of course, was a process that required lots more people, ones with special skill sets that could make you want to hear it over and over and over again. This meant they worked with other people with skills that could get the music any and everywhere you are. And another set of people who could get other people to talk about it, write about it, and spin it so that it would come through the speakers at clubs and parties and cars and earphones and my radio. 
All of these people and processes and systems are instrumental to making sure that little eight-year-old me and the millions of other people, people who lived all across the world, could have various opportunities to hear it and want it and have a piece of it, just like those records she owned. Yeah, I was devastated and, yeah, a little heartbroken that the artists weren't somewhere playing the songs live every time I heard it on the radio. But that whole process of making perfect copies that could get played again and again, finding ways to make people who wanted it, and making ways for them to get it, fascinated me. But that's when I realized something crucially important that would, from then on, control the trajectory of my life. I didn't want to just hear music, and I didn't need to make music myself. And I certainly didn't want to be the person that just played music for others. I wanted to be one of the people with the unique ability to make all of this happen. And that, that's what I'm trying to do right now, Mr. Leone. He fought off the urge to smile. And as his face seemed to loosen up a bit, perhaps empathizing with my story, I took this as permission to go on. Listen, uh, with all due respect, Mr. Leone, the hip-hop generation is made up of people who look as much like you as they do me. The reason why we're even in this meeting is because your director is a fan of my artist's work. In fact, the growth we've seen in our sales is a 200% increase, and that's reflected across streaming and live attendance, and that is just in the last 12 months. 62% of these people at our shows are neither black, nor women, nor are they even millennials or Gen Z. In fact, I could say that this audience is made up of the same people that made Hamilton a hit. That's Gen X and Boomers. Sure, young, black kids are a segment of my customer base. Yes, but again, Blaine Stanfield, your director of programming, is the reason we're even talking. He began nodding his head, and I could only hope that he was taking my words to heart. Look, I'm trying to build something here. A record company in a city known more for that house of cards down there on Capitol Hill than it is anything artistic or musical. But we, and I do mean you and I, we have a chance to do something very special. Let's not let Hamilton be your only foray into a culture and an art form that, come on, let's face it, is not going anywhere. Your event is with and about the people of this city. What better way to honor them than feature a musician who speaks to and for them? That conversation with the Kennedy Center folks, that was seven months ago. I'd like to think that I've gotten better at selling myself and my business without having to feel antagonized before exuding confidence. But see, the thing about running a business is that it's no different than any other aspect of life. It doesn't come with a manual, and you'll suck at everything at first. Until, at some point, you don't. 
The John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts sits right on the Potomac, overlooking the river on one side and the famous Watergate on another. On any given night, you might be able to catch a play, ballet, dance, or musical performance, as it's the busiest and arguably the most famous and prestigious performing arts venue in the entire country. Now on this crisp November evening, months in the making after a few back and forths with Mr. Leone and the board, that auditorium was filled with adults, evident by their fine threads and expensive fragrances. Not exactly the type of attire TK was used to seeing when she looked out into the crowd. Nevertheless, with the help of her band, she got the entire place on their feet during her performance. And they remained there, applauding well after she was finished. Naturally antisocial, TK only stayed for the reception afterward for the food. I, on the other hand, chose to use this time seeking out the assistance of the folks in decision-making positions. The Kennedy Center is, by far, the most distinguished place in the city for promoting the arts. This was my opportunity to meet anyone who remotely mattered here. But I was truly seeking people who didn't exactly matter, yet, to make certain they knew my name and what I was doing. I've learned that when you're trying to build something, anything, like I was with this record company, you make sure to give a handshake with the same level of firmness to the assistant as you do the people who you think you really want to know. Because who do you think is going to answer or ignore your email or put your phone call through or pass along your message? It likely won't be someone who's a big shot already. Many of the same well-dressed folks from the audience, as well as the awards recipients, were now socializing, drinking, and laughing in a more relaxed setting, sharing conversations about events they frequent and the donations they make to this and other area arts establishments. TK finished her soda and allowed the server to take her empty plate from in front of her. For a moment, she sat there, overhearing stories of absolutely no interest to her. So after about another minute or so of this, she figured it was time to go. So she stood up and she walked toward the exit. Hey, hey, that, hey, that was, that was an awesome performance back there. TK turned to see a man standing behind her, smiling as hard as he possibly could. He was somewhere in the ballpark of 50, although he looked spry and moved quite well. He approached, expecting a handshake, as he made it closer, which TK reluctantly obliged. Remember, shaking hands, touching at all, wasn't something she did, and she especially didn't do so with those of the opposite sex. But knowing that this could sometimes come across as cold and standoffish, she sometimes made concessions depending on the circumstance. Bob, Bob Pagano. All the kids call me Mr. Pagano. <laughs> he began laughing and shaking his head at his own words. That's, that's so stupid. I mean, I'm a man. I mean, what, what else would they, would they call me? <laughs> TK could see that the guy was nervous, 
and TK herself was starting to get a little nervous, but for a different reason. The guy was starting to seem a little creepy. What I actually meant to say was, I'm Bob Pagano. I'm the recipient of the Teacher of the Year Award. Oh, oh, okay. TK said, a bit relieved. Congratulations. Thanks. And then to keep the conversation going, he said, Hey, someone told me you were in education yourself. Oh, yeah. Um, I teach world history over at H.D. Woodson High. It's kind of like my day job. Oh, yeah, I, I totally get it. God gotta pay the bills, right? <laughs> I mean, I just finished my 12th album myself. TK wasn't quite sure she liked what she was hearing. And the grimace that overtook her face made that fact quite apparent. Reading TK's contorted countenance, blanketed by lack of understanding of what she was being told in the moment, Mr. Pagano decided rather than just tell her, he'd show her. Toby grabs more evolution bars. He remembers to pay. Jackson is aware that mug abduction is a meme display. Tina wrote an accordion essay. It was good till about half. And right there, surrounded by some of DC's finest dignitaries, Mr. Pagano busted a rhyme. He even began to draw a crowd around them who provided the rhythm for him with synchronized claps. Now, Bob was one of those people who had been trying to come up with a solution to the preparation plus opportunity problem for the better part of both his personal and professional lives. Although the professional part is of the most concern to me, I think you should at least know that this man, who, if he were a woman, would easily be considered a spinster, had gone to incredible lengths to ensure that he would not only have the life he dreamed of as a younger man, but that he'd be ready for it when the opportunities presented themselves. But as much as we hate to acknowledge it, the preparation is often the only part that we control. The opportunity, however, is almost always the part where the universe has all the say-so. Robert Pagano, or Bob as he preferred, was single and childless. And it wasn't for lack of trying not to be. But he always wanted those things in the right order. And, well, the opportunity for marriage had never been right. And so the opportunity, as far as what he could control for children, had yet to present itself either. Now, as for his career, he'd done fine as a teacher, a profession he got into when he was 28 evident by the award he'd just been given that night. No, it wasn't his first choice for the type of work he saw himself devoting his life to. Bob always wanted to be a rapper. It was a dream of his since he first heard the sound of rhyming words over break beats. Now, whether Bob was ever any good at this is completely subjective. Plenty of rappers have gone on to fame and fortune without having obvious talent or talent compared to those who we don't question whether they're good. But no one could ever question his dedication to the craft and his hustle. He had lived through the era of selling tapes from trunks of cars, burning CDs, and he had even been signed, shelved, and eventually dropped by a record company once, so apparently somebody thought he was okay. But like many artists, despite his efforts and years of commitment, 
the opportunity to break through and be big time just never materialized. Maybe, though, the fame and the fortune of it all just wasn't in the cards for him. And maybe he was okay with that. Or maybe it was, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe a part of me believes that everybody does everything with the hopes of being the biggest, the brightest, and the best at what they're doing because that's part of my goal for the things that I do. Maybe it was I who presumptuously thought that the desire to rap inevitably came with the desire to sell millions of records and do the rapping in front of millions of people. Maybe I shouldn't believe that everybody wants the same things that I would. Again, maybe this, as hard as it may be for me to believe, self-producing and releasing his own music, maybe it was enough for him. Maybe teaching advanced placement mathematics paid the bills comfortably and making music, despite how limited the audience, little the support, and the fact that there was obviously no return on the investment, maybe it brought about a satisfaction with just the artistic release. Yeah, all of this explaining I'm doing for Mr. Pagano sounds nice. But TK, who could feel herself inching closer and closer to 29 with every second that passed as she stood there watching and listening to this 52-year-old guy attempt to convince her that he could have been Rakim or Big Daddy Kane had he been afforded the break, she was feeling something else. Fear. She never thought about how long she would juggle teaching and music. Until right now. She felt like she was potentially staring herself in the mirror, and that was scary. In her mind, she was the best, and she wanted to be recognized as such. She had been pursuing a career in hip-hop now for more than half her life. No doubt she was prepared for her opportunity. She had always been the very patient type, but in that moment... It was absolutely no doubt. She wanted it now. So as everyone else seemed to find Bob Pagano's impromptu freestyle cipher to be charming, rather welcoming actually, and surprising, Taj Kamal was silently having an existential panic attack. Much like the music industry, D.C. was changing. That perception or misconception that everything is old and gray, like our buildings, the streets, the men, that thought was being challenged. We had survived the country's economic slump and was undergoing an entire social renovation. Things that were once old were now new again, and no longer was age a prerequisite for dominance. In fact, women like my friend Jay were not above personal quests 
to investigate and prove the hypothesis that with youth came certain uh, physical benefits. Oh my God, his energy is fucking ridiculous. And his mouth? She exclaimed with a long blink as if she was remembering something right then and there. I mean, the things he can do with his teeth. Not his tongue, but his actual teeth. Cut off by the glare of a short Barbadian woman, likely 60 or so, who was giving her one of those eye-cutting, seemingly judgmental non-stares while topping off drinks for us. Jay stopped as the area fell silent around us for the moment. Jay, Ty, and I had spent the better part of the last hour walking around an experimental, technology-driven art exhibit that used everything from LED lights to your cell phone to tell a story or take you into a whole other reality of artistic experience. It's hard for me to really explain something that you really need to experience in order to get it, which is what Jay had been trying to tell us during the Uber ride to the place. See, she had been before, several times in fact, and she and our driver, an old guy by the name of Ollie, who you wouldn't guess was really into this kind of thing, were both attempting to explain what we would be in for as he chauffeured us to the place. But there was no way they could accurately describe this. Before now, I had never even entertained the idea of art galleries or other institutions that showcased art becoming outdated. But after this experience, I would never look at the -the run-of-the-mill museum without thinking, they need to step up their game. So yes, of course, they had a full bar in the place where you could take a moment, or however long you needed, away from the art to truly digest what you just experienced with some libations. There was no telling exactly how much the bartender had heard before Jay decided to spare her of the details that she was more than ready to give me and Ty about what had happened last night. And this morning, too, for that matter. The bartender quickly finished, but instead of throwing in a condemnatory look at Jay, who would have missed it as she was concentrating on the hard seltzer in front of her that seemed to be more ice than drink, she smiled and said to her, I'll be over here while you finish your little story. Let me know if you ladies need anything else. It was almost as if she and Jay had some unspoken understanding as they nodded and shared a smile before she was taking drinks from another group at the end of the bar. Anyway, I wonder if using the teeth like that is like a thing where he's from. Somewhere in Britain, some fucking where. I don't know, but it's a goddamn gift. And he's British? (laughs) You cannot make this stuff up. Ty said, laughing at some untold portion of the story. Uh, I don't get it. I said, looking back and forth at them, waiting for somebody to fill me in. Hey, uh, why don't you tell Kenya his name? (laughs) Ty asked Jay with a devious smile on her face. But Jay simply rolled her eyes, holding in a blush, and didn't respond. Perhaps the alcohol was more important than this, too. So Ty went on. His name, get this, is Mason Dixon. (laughs) I smiled and looked at Jay, waiting for her to say something in defense or maybe to correct Ty or something. 
But again, the drink was priority. You're seeing a guy named Mason Dixon? I asked, for some reason finding that rather fascinating. <sighs> I met him when I went to go get a tattoo. Wait, you got a tattoo? I was so out of the loop. Because of the demise of Ty's short-lived marriage, Jay felt like it was her responsibility to make sure her good friend didn't spend too much time at home alone. She had no intention of trying to help her meet new guys again. These efforts were more altruistic. She genuinely wanted to spend more time with her to help keep her mind on perhaps some altogether new experiences. Because even though Jay knew very little about marriage and what little she did know left a sour taste in her mouth, she imagined it probably had the same effect on its subjects as that cryogenic freezing chamber from Austin Powers. Sure, Austin woke up 30 years later, still young looking, but everything about him, everything he knew, his style, his slang, his music taste, everything was still somewhere in the 60s. Now to Jay, Ty was stuck somewhere in the last decade or so. Ty hadn't been married for that long, but in the 21st century, things move fast now. And Ty was already unusually mature for her 30 years and seven months. She's a, quote, throwback, as Jay calls her. The kind of girl you might expect to see in one of those Victorian novels if they had black people in them. She prefers to write everything by hand, instead of on the computer or in her phone. She hardly uses apps, and I don't know how she's as productive as she is. She refuses to use one of those e-readers for her books. She insists she needs to feel the paper, and she almost exclusively wears dresses or skirts. I don't even think she owns a pair of sweatpants. Now couple this with all that school and a marriage, you could say that her entire 20s had been spent in a virtual time capsule. None of this helped her as she now tried to navigate this almost solely technology, data-driven digital society we live in now. The very world in which Jay thrives. So as they spent more and more time together now, or Jay would say, again, finally, Ty couldn't understand the gratification Jay got from taking so many pictures of herself every single day, or what benefits she got from seeing the hearts and thumbs and likes climb by the second after every post. And when the hell did she even have time to meet 478,000 people? She didn't get the tattoo, Ty said to me, calmingly. And then she turned to Jay. Hey, he looked young. You ever bother to even find out how old he is? Yeah. Make sure you're not crossing any lines. Sure, my little joke was corny, but I just couldn't pass it up. Ty got it and smiled. Jay ignored me. You know, Jay started taking her time. Age is such an arbitrary thing. Ty looked at her, shaking her head. That answer? Seriously? <laughs> it makes me question his legality. No, he's, he's legal, okay? Jay said, very unconvincingly. Ty looked at her, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And again, Jay took her time before finally saying, He's 20. 20? 
Are you kidding me? Ty said louder than expected. Jay shrugged. I mean, he's a mature 20. And I could no longer (laughs) even hold in my laughter. Ty actually wanted to laugh too, but she refused and just looked at me and repeated, A mature 20. And shook her head in disbelief at the obvious absurdity of the statement. Now, would you believe she graduated summa cum laude from Howard and she says some things like this? Listen, an eight-year difference is nothing, okay? If I was 39 and he was 31... But he's not 31. He's 20. Not even old enough to buy you that drink. Shit, he'll be 21... eventually. Ty offered nothing more than her now customary eye-roll head-shaking reaction to Jay's response. Despite often challenging the pressures put on women by most societies and cultures, and not wanting to fall victim to these expectations herself, it's hard to break out of what you know and what's been ingrained so deeply. Ty probably married when she did because she didn't want to be that woman who had gotten too old and was not married yet. Oh yeah, and love, apparently. She would also admit that her overly delicate, pleasant, always well-presented way about her was because she was a belle from the South. But was it? Or was it another way she was bending to expectations? Now I'm sure she had absolutely no problem with pants, but something in her just felt like she, as a proper woman, should wear dresses or skirts fucking patriarchy. It's like some kind of voodoo cast by the sickest priestess. Male priestess, of course. Despite finding humor at her expense, I felt bad for Jay this time. You know, if she were a man, I said to Ty without looking at her, you wouldn't even be having this conversation. Exactly, Jay agreed. And with her eyebrows raised, Ty put her wine down, looked at me and said, So you're siding with her on this? Look, I'm just saying, men have been dating people half their age since the beginning of time, and everybody's okay with it. He's not half my age, Jay corrected justifiably. But in response to me, Ty said, Because it balances out. Look, men mature much later than women, so... A 50-year-old man is really only mentally in his early to maybe mid-30s. So if he dates a woman who's 30, they're actually about the same age. In this case, the guy you're seeing, Jay, is only about six, maybe seven years old. Jay couldn't help but laugh at the potential truth of that statement. But I, however, was still caught up on the part about a 50-year-old man dating someone that was much younger. Ty looked at me, noticing that I was suddenly distant. Hey, what's going on? I took a deep breath, not really wanting to bring this up, but I couldn't avoid it now because it was already up. Well, my father is seeing someone. Apparently, it's pretty serious. Last night, I was supposed to have dinner with the two of them. Ty and Jay's eyes met without either one of them having to move their heads. I could feel, and see, that they were literally on the edges of their seats, 
hanging on to my story, anticipating the details that would explain my sudden discomfort. But when I stopped, apparently finished with what I had started, Ty opened her hands and, as if to inform me that she was still waiting for more, she said with an upward inflection in her voice, And? And with another deep breath, I tried to decide how I was going to say this since I was now embarrassed by my own actions. See, most nights, by the time I got home, my father was either already asleep or already gone for work. He was an emergency room nurse practitioner with crazy hours, so I seldom knew exactly when we'd see each other throughout a given day. We had a system, though. Before sleep, every night, if we hadn't seen or talked to each other that day, we had to call and hear the other's voice, if only for a brief moment, to say, Love you, before the day ended. This was something my dad started when I went to college, even though I didn't leave town for school. And things had begun to change in the house with his and my mother's relationship, for lack thereof. We hadn't had a particularly ideal father-daughter connection when I was growing up, and perhaps he felt bad about that. Perhaps he felt bad about a lot of things. But John Shaw has always been the type of guy to make an effort to correct things and embrace change, rather than wallow in misery. But last night, instead of coming home to a sleeping dad or an empty house, I found myself standing outside my front door trying to decipher how many voices exactly were coming from inside the house. We were the only two people who lived there now, so the blend of voices was kind of confusing me. And then I remembered that earlier that week, my father did tell me that he wanted me to meet somebody, somebody special, he'd said. I thought about all of this as I went ahead and picked up from where Ty's one-word question and had left me. And I just didn't go in. I left, and I texted him saying that I forgot I had plans, which wasn't a lie. I did have plans that I made right then to meet up with a friend. Isn't this like the second time you've made up plans to avoid me? <sighs> I know, I know. I admit it, cutting her off before she could finish. I know, I just, it's just, uh, 33, really? 33. I didn't know if I was being unreasonable, but instead of finding out if I had two people who agreed with me and my reaction to my father and the idea of a 33-year-old, I didn't want to find out. I just avoided looking at them and continued to stare into my drink. But still, I had to start putting some real thought into my way of thinking. Kids often adapt to traditional images of what their family ought to look like. Mother, father, children, holidays, birthdays, kids grow up, find their one, get married, rinse and repeat. But was it silly for me to hold on to this when my parents haven't been an item for nearly a decade and were glorified roommates for years before making formal separation official? Living with my father, however, and finally allowing myself to actually see him with someone new would just make this more real to me. We're all idealists, so I wasn't ready for real. My parents were never getting back together. And I knew this for sure. 
But perhaps, despite having 10 years to get used to it, I just wasn't ready to admit it. Meeting his new someone would be an admission. This new someone being almost 20 years younger than he was just gave me another, maybe a much better, excuse. After a few seconds, Ty asked, slowly and intentionally putting soft emphasis on very specific words in this very short question. So are you sure that it's just the age thing that bothers you? It doesn't bother me, I said, quickly jumping in front of that thought as if I needed to be clear before she or Jay, who was just listening by this point, could get the wrong idea. I was starting to feel like my friend had left the bar and that I was now talking to Ty, the head doctor in that museum. But now, after a few more seconds, I decided not to build this conversation on a lie. Okay, it bothers me. I'm 27. I have friends who are 33. Why is it weird that I think it's weird that my father also has friends who are 33? Well, that's the thing about love, Kenya. It doesn't always make sense. Now, wait a goddamn minute. You just fucked with me about seeing a younger dude just like five minutes ago. Yeah, that's because what you're doing has nothing to do with love. It's... Damn this statutory rape. I'm tempted to call somebody. I don't understand it, though, Kenya. Jay said now. If your father's happy, then what difference does it make? And honestly, there was no way that I could answer that and still sound my age. When I turned 18, I finally got my first car, an already 16-year-old Nissan Altima. It was taupe inside, aubergine on the outside, and before I'd even been the owner a full year, all four hubcaps had mysteriously vanished, seemingly all at once. But the cool thing was, when I was really feeling nostalgic, I could pop in a cassette tape because the player still worked. Although that was probably the only thing that still functioned without some kind of jimmy rig to assist this operation. Now, I was almost 10 years older, and so was the car. Now, I aged quite well, if I do say so myself. The car, though? Mm, not so much. Short distances weren't as scary, so I reserved its use for important errands like grocery shopping, where today I lost track of time after getting caught up tasting samples of pumpkin spice nonsense and talking about it with old people. So that afternoon, I was late for an appointment at my own house. Apparently, the wall around the property was slowly collapsing. The house was built in 1900, a Victorian row house just blocks away from Eastern Market. So, despite a few rounds of renovations throughout its lifetime, the wall had met its match with Father Time. So it either needed to be reinforced, rebuilt, 
or taken down altogether. I was scheduled to meet an engineer at 2 to assess the damage and get the verdict, which, of course, I would give to my father. I pulled into a parking space right in front of my house and immediately noticed the guy with a white shirt tucked into his jeans, already walking around the wall and taking notes. I quickly got out of the car with an apology already written all over my face as I approached him, but before I could say anything, he introduced himself. Gideon Lamar, GL Engineering, while offering a handshake. Uh, hi. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I'm... I'm late? I said, accepting his hand. Traffic? He asked with a smile, before looking back at my car and saying, Or car trouble? Condescendingly. Uh, no. Um, no real excuse. I just... I'm late. Just late. And he accepted that with a smile and said, Ah, don't sweat it. Late happens. I was a bit relieved that he wasn't a jerk about it. Um, I went ahead and got started out here. Will the uh, man of the house be joining us today? I could immediately read that this question was not as professional as it might be or should be construed. I answered anyway, knowing that his question was meant to provide deeper insight that had nothing to do with a father and more so to do with whether I was single. Um, no, he... he won't. Now, in those five seconds I'd known him, I hadn't entertained the idea of whether Gideon was attractive or not until that very moment, because... Well, I'd like to say that it was because I was professional and assumed he'd keep it that way, too, but... That wasn't the reason. Gideon could have been maybe 45, give or take a few years, and he was fit, had all of his hair, and had very little, if any, gray. But honestly, I almost never initially see men as attractive options when they're over a certain age. Not that I couldn't. I just never did. But now that I had been presented with the idea of whether to consider Gideon, as an option, well, I guess he was kind of good-looking. It still felt weird to me trying to see someone, probably 20 years my senior, in that way. He spent the next 20 minutes explaining things to me about the integrity of the retaining wall surrounding the house, pointing out cracks and splits in the concrete, talking about weeping holes and drainage concerns, while, of course, sneaking in a few personal questions like, did you grow up in D.C.? What do you do for a living? And a collection of others that led to more specificity about who, exactly, that man of the house really was, which, once he found out that it was my father, ultimately led to, do you have an email address where I could send you a quote for the work? Um, sure. I responded, taking the yellow pad and pen he'd been using to take notes. You know what? Actually, you can just email it to the one you have on file. It's my dad's. He's paying for it anyway. Well, um, <clears throat> since you're the one who I'm building this rapport with, would you mind if I just called you to discuss any further details about this? And before I could answer, he added... Of course, I would also like to talk with you about 
more than a wall. Of course, if you don't mind. And like most women, I had no idea how to avoid the unsolicited personal number inquiry. So I wrote my number on the pad as if I didn't mind. I watched as he went across the street to a small, relatively new company-marked pickup truck and nodded a cordial goodbye to me as he pulled off. With all of the age talk lately, I was curious. I had met my fair share of frogs. Could Prince Charming actually be a man of a certain age? After I put my groceries away, I headed down to one of my favorite record stores to meet up with Stax before we headed out to the movies. As movie buffs, Stax and I had always made it a priority post-Thanksgiving to see the films that might be Oscar contenders in February. I never discriminate based on age. I fucked a 50-year-old when I was 25. It's all the same in the dark. He said, before looking over at me with a wicked smile while flipping through the classic rock section intently, although having no real intention of buying anything. I had told him about my encounter with the older gentleman, and of course, he had an opinion. The key is confidence, he went on. The same way you go after what you want when it comes to music is the same tenacity you need to have when it comes to guys. A woman that knows what she wants, whether she's 50 or 15, is always a turn-on. Wait, you're turned on by 15-year-olds? You're missing the point. Men just aren't as intimidating as you make us out to be. Shit, we're really not even all that sophisticated. You're missing the point, I said. I'm not really all that interested in older men. I'm sorry. I mean, not that much older anyway. I mean, shit, how... How old are we talking? I don't know. 40-something? I looked at him for a response of some kind, but he just kept flipping through records like I hadn't just said something outrageous. And then he offered. You know, I can see you with an older guy. The entertainment business can be very demanding. An older man may be more settled and apt to understand and accept your schedule and your pace. I'd never even thought about that. Then he went on. We become a little less selfish as we get older. I have to admit, I think an older man might be better for support and stability. Sometimes Stax could say things so profound and insightful that it would change my entire outlook of an issue. Oh, shit. Look at this. He screamed. He pulled the album completely out of the holder and handed it to me. Tequila by The Champs. You remember Pee-wee's big adventure, like dancing in the bar? He began doing the dance from the movie and whistling the song. And then he would do something to remind me that he was a 27-year-old guy who still indulged in video games and collected comic books and preferred animated sitcoms over ones with actual people. If it wasn't for his active sex life and full-time job, he could honestly be mistaken for a 12-year-old boy. I watched him as he stood there laughing and doing the Pee Wee Herman dance. And I began to think, 
If this was what I could expect from men my age, maybe I was past reinforcing that wall. Perhaps it was time to consider taking it down altogether. While I was contemplating the structural integrity of my dating life, Ty was entertaining the thought of rebuilding hers. She was technically a doctor already. She had her PhD. After completing graduate school, her practica, dissertation, and internship. But she wasn't licensed to practice just yet. She was in the middle of her postdoctoral fellowship basically supervised training and mentorship in her field to help prepare her for her specialty. She worked at an office in Southeast where she had quickly made nice with almost everyone who worked there, from the partners who were big-name doctors, some of whom had made the top doctors list for D.C., to the groundspeople who kept the place clean and running. She knew something about every single person working there, and they felt at ease with revealing very personal things to her without her even asking. She made it a point to get to work a half an hour early every day because she knew she needed extra time to engage the people she crossed paths with. So that day, as she was preparing to leave the office, she smiled as she approached the girl sitting at the front desk, Shawnice, as she headed toward the door. Good night, see you tomorrow. Good night. Oh, Dr. Aldrich, um, someone left this here for you. She was pointing a small white envelope at Ty, who curiously walked back to accept it. She immediately opened it right then and there without hesitation and revealed, it's another card. Mm, that's the third one this month. From Mr. Pettigrew? Shawnice asked. Ty simply looked at her because it was, in fact, from Mr. Pettigrew. Hmm, maybe you should call him, Shawnice said. Hmm, technically, he's a patient, and I can't fraternize with a patient, Ty said. And Shawnice raised one eyebrow, obviously keeping most of her thoughts about Ty's rule to herself. But then she finally did say, He's also a fine-ass single dietitian with a cute kid. Who's technically the patient here? Ty got the implication, smiled and said, Good night. Before walking off. So we're going to tie it up right here. Nice little bow on it. Since it'd be too long to put it all here, next week I'll give you part two of the recap. You can find links to all of the artists featured here in your show notes. I actually recommend, though, going back and listening to the full episodes of the podcast, which includes the cold open segments. They give you a timely, sometimes even philosophical viewpoint to help introduce the themes of each episode. Lastly, don't forget to go to ofmusicandmen.com to get your copy of episode two, Nothing But a Number. And guess what? You can pay any amount that you want to give. We're not picky over here. I mean, I know I'm not. If you want to download it for like five bucks, that's what we suggest. 
If you don't have five bucks, just download it, read it, just give us a good review. And I'm saying us is like, <laughs> give the book, okay, us, meaning me and the characters, right? Give us a good review online, on social media, tag me, tag of music and men. That'll be all for this week. Stay tuned next week for the next part of the recap. And I promise you, episode three is coming very, very soon. 